and welcome to Deep Impact, a proud member of the Doof Network where we dive deep into Wildbo's most nice and accurate work five years on. Coming up next is Elliot Diebold. And that was Ruben Morehouse. And we are back to talk about Malafide 10.6. Uh, so we, we left Malafide 10.5 with Blake having to choose between his two favourite people, except he hates one of them, and so I don't know why it's a hard choice. <laughs> Yeah, well, the chapter opens with the, the the whole dilemma kind of rephrased as Mags and Molly on one hand, my <laughs> friends on the other, yes, which... and, and like Rosa's name is sort of tactically left off the list. I can't help but think that maybe Wildbo saw the massive like skew in the comments on the last chapter and decided that he needed yep. to remind all of us that it's not just Rose in the house. So here's here's my little question for you, Elliot. Do you think that when he says my friends on the other, he's including Rose or excluding her and not even mentioning her? I I can't decide. Uh, I think like, probably because he doesn't say my friends and Rose on the other. Yes, he says which would have been yeah yeah my friends and Rose would have been like yep fair like yep. that's sort of where he is. Whereas now it's left a little bit ambiguous because <laughs> he can't seem to make up his mind about her. Uh, yes, this it's arc. true. I mean, yeah, but um. It, yeah, sorry. So the the main chunk of this opening bit is really, for me, Blake has this big sort of internal monologue about ch- wanting to change his patterns. Like he he sort of ruminates on how his trust my gut approach uh, that he used for the first seven arcs gave him a lot of momentum, but not mm. necessarily in a good direction. Yeah. Uh, and so he does seem determined to try and do things a bit differently. Like, he doesn't just go with his gut instinct of, of running around breaking windows. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, this is something that I think was explicitly called out in... In the drains, yeah. Yeah, 9.5 uh, or thereabouts. And it's good to see Blake sort of finally embracing uh, his right-handedness more than mm. the than the left. Uh, it's it's great. And, it um, y- you know, this is obviously, we've talked about a lot, this arc has been all about Blake sort of coming to terms with the change he's undergone. And this is him sort of consciously working it into his behaviour a bit more. Yeah. Um, obviously, he does some mirror shenanigans later on in this chapter in this little fight scene, but um, he doesn't seem to be... Uh, he, he seems to be kind of in control of stuff. He seems to kind of have settled a lot more uh, throughout this chapter than, than he had earlier. And uh, Yeah. Yeah. So, I want to read out a line here. The line is, She'd recovered. I didn't recover so much as I changed. Those changes led down a road. If I'd lost something, there was no guarantee I could replenish it. Talking about Rose here. Um, Mm. uh, And and this is just a, you know, we we kind of remember Blake being a bit invulnerable to physical damage, uh, which of course we kind of know why that is, because he patches it up with glamour. Um, And, or, you know, spirits or whatever the case may be. Um, Yeah, whatever he had on hand, basically. (laughs) Wax, spirits, glamour, who cares? Um, He's not fussy. Yes. Uh, But I like that this now kind of re-emphasizes for us, no, 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 damage is uh, back on, no more god mode, Um, because actually you're not not recovering, you're just covering it up. Yeah, there's really a sense that he's he's a fuse and and, there's no going back. Um, I mean, the interesting thing is he talks a lot about how Rose recovers. Like, mm. Has she? Like, how do we know <laughs> she's not going through the same shit as Blake? Like, true. I, I mean, you know, I'm just, I'm just still tinfoil, and like, he doesn't know this. Um, mm. but yeah, I mean, I do like this sort of little bit. Also, reminds us of Rose's like mirror abilities because he sort of specifically re- references, uh, just a few lines after this. I think, uh, the bit in the station where she put her arm out the window. Yes, um, which obviously, obviously pays off later in this chapter. Yeah, so it sort of reminds us of that, and then also, of course, reminds us that he's he's a ticking clock now <laughs> uh, when it comes to, you know, copying damage. Yes, he's, uh, yeah. He really is not doing so hot. Um, I liked, there was a note in your live read where you called out that uh, he had the, hy- uh, the hyena sword still stuck into his hand, and that just seemed to be like a permanent thing now. It, yeah, he doesn't even seem bothered by it. Like, he's just like, huh. Good thing I have those basically permanent holes in my hands. Yep. Um, you know, so that nothing, you know, the sword can't slide out. And it's just like, you have fucking holes in your hands? Like, I forgot. Or <laughs> I, don't, I don't think we'd realize quite how permanent those are. Like, yep. that's, uh, he's, he, this is just a part of him that is so chill about these physical changes that are going on to him. Like, I mean, yes. I guess it does seem like that has utility as long as he's got the hyena, but 
are, you know, he's got Swiss cheese hands now. Like, I don't yeah. know. That's weird. He should be more yeah, freaked he, out by this. Yeah. I'm on Green Eyes' side. No, it's true because, um, and, and this is kind of, you know, continuing that theme of just like, yeah, you're kind of too cool with just how freaky you are <laughs> now, Blake. Yeah, he's really, uh, he's, he's just rolled with it, like, a lot. Yeah. Um, so Blake thinks about Mags and goes to warn her, but she is basically on the way to Hillsglade House. So it's, it's a bit ambiguous. We end the last chapter with him thinking, oh, I have to make a choice. And it is a bit ambiguous what he, what he chooses or even if he chooses here. Yes. The, the way the chapter plays out, I almost had the impression that the plan sort of became just run and tell both of them and, and play it by ear when I'm there. Yeah. Because he, he sort of goes to the house, but he is thinking that he'll go to Mags next, and then he ends up, you know, having to go to Mags first and, and ditching her. So it's, um, kind of seems like he just didn't really make the choice. Yeah. Yeah. Um, he does stop by Hillsglade House on the way, though. He doesn't just skip it, which I guess is making a choice. Um, mm. and on the way, he sees a few people, uh, including Johannes, Faisal, Sandra, uh, and some others, all kind of converging on one spot to have a little impromptu meeting. Um, <laughs> which is a great kind of escalation of just Johannes and Sandra are seemingly working together on this. Uh, so Mags has really fucked up. Yeah, I mean, it sort of immediately sells it as like, this is a big deal uh, that everyone's gathering, especially considering Mags is normally the glue that holds them all together. Yeah. So it's, uh, it, yeah, it's a big deal. Yeah. Um, I- I'm still a little curious on what Blake would have done if he was able to get into Hillsglade House. Like, I'm assuming he would have still gone on to to, to talk to Mags, but it, it's ambiguous. I don't know. It's interesting. Yeah, I I mean, I don't think Rose would have let him stay long anyway, so <laughs> True. Uh, probably a moot point. But uh, yeah, I agree. I think he would have been like, hey, FYI, Jeremy's coming. It's, it's bad. Uh, I got to go tell Mags. Mm-hmm. Okay. I think that, that that's the impression I got of what his plan was. But, you know, Blake plans, they're not really set in stone. Mm. <laughs> or set at all. Yeah. Um, I, I also just wanted to call out that, like, Blake goes on, again, another little thought tangent about uh, the stores in town that he passes on his way to Mags. Mm. And, um, you know, sort of talking about how some are old and, and shitty and then there's, like, mixed in these really new and expensive ones. And he doesn't really understand how or why that works. Um, mm. which is interesting because like obviously I-, I live in like rural australia and we have the same thing here like th- this almost describes like the the main mall of my town to a t mm. so i'm now worried about what's going to be happening here over the next few months because uh, it's clearly <laughs> going to be a battle for lordship this is the only explanation yeah i like that blake's ex- explanation is oh, it must be johannes's influence kind of making some more well-off people start to settle here because i don't know what else it could be which is interesting. Um, I guess gentrification is a part of spirit's influence, impact. Yeah, I mean, that would, like, you know, it's that whole thing where the spirit and the real world uh, reflect each other. Yeah. Um, God, I, I'm using that word so much it's losing all meaning. Um, <laughs> yeah. But, yeah, exactly. So as the town goes on the up and up, so do, so do the civilians. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, so Blake finds Mags and, and Mags is obviously kind of saddened that the town seems to be moving against her, but kind of was expecting it when she decided to take Molly as a familiar. Um, she basically says to Blake, Hey, you can't really help much here. So you might as well just go try and help Rose where you might actually be useful. Uh, I'm just going to try and, you know, argue my case, take my lumps, but fight it where I can. Ah, I love Mags so much. Like what a battle. She's good. She's just, she's just, uh, so noble. Yeah. Um, the, uh, I mean, I love when, when Blake first arrives on the scene, uh, there's this quote that I just want to read out where he says, um, I couldn't see Mags's face from this angle, but her posture was bent as if she had a weight on her shoulders. A pity. I'd hoped she'd recover a bit facing down her demons. Mm. Had I facing down Carl? And um, I mean, I just love how this thought relates to all the stuff we're talking about, especially in this arc, but overall in, in the whole story of Pact about like change. Um, because, I mean, you know, at least in my experience, having these sorts of epiphanies or actually confronting these things doesn't just make them go away. Like, Blake sort of realizes when he thinks about Carl, it kind of helps you and, and helps you establish patterns to get around them. But it doesn't just mean, like, oh, I confronted that. Like, check. Yeah, check that box. And now I'm well <laughs> again. Yeah. Yeah, you exactly. You can't just kind of 
you know, you can't just confront your fear or, you know, do immersion therapy and then it's like flicking a light switch, you know? Yeah, like confronting your shit is is tough and, and this is sort of Blake having to uh, remember that as he's going through it yeah. uh, on a very large scale because, you know, this is fantasy, so it's not just normal shit. He's got, like, normal shit times a thousand. Yes, it's, uh, you know, like supernatural trauma, right? Yeah. Um, which I guess yeah. is a theme for Wabo. Um <laughs> So, uh, again, kind of we see Mags be sad, uh, reflecting on Sandra and how Sandra is now an enemy. Uh, Mags says mm. she, was a, she wasn't an enemy, which is interesting because it's, she doesn't call her an ally, which presumably is because she thinks that would be a lie. Well, I mean, also she was meant to be the neutral party. It wasn't, te- like, technically it wasn't allowed to be true. Yeah, fair um, enough. Up until now. But, yeah, I agree. Like, are they, her and Sandra had a like not a friendship just sort of some sort of connection or relationship that was hard to define but it was a positive one i mean sandra really helped her out in signature like uh i i can see why her standing with sandra would be important to her i think that really meant a lot when it happened so yeah and all of last arc was mags using that uh pen you know ink trick to test the strength of connections Um, yeah yeah, or the arc was it? It was the arc before last. Sorry, um, well, chapter chapter yeah. before last. Um, yeah, which which obviously is is kind of demonstrating that Mags really has kind of gained some influence from Sandra. Uh, so it is sad to, mm. to I don't know to have that be lost. I mean, and so I'm kind of assuming he's right at this point, but Blake doesn't actually have any confirmation that they are going after Mags yet, right? Like mm. he. He doesn't know this for sure. He's assumed it and rolled with it. And I think he's probably right. But like walking around saying, because his response to Mag saying she wasn't an enemy is him saying she is now. And it's like, I don't know if you should be throwing around uh, definitive uh, accusations like too this. absolute, yeah. Um, so I don't know, risky behavior from uh, Blake when he's trying to keep that shit under control. Yeah, fair. Um, we get an interesting beat that Mags tells Blake that his presence is making Molly worse. Which it we don't really know explicitly why, possibly because they are related, or possibly because their other powers kind of interact with each other in an interesting way. Whether that's Molly kind of feeding off ambient negativity, or Blake giving off negative energy, or both, or some mix. Um, yeah, maybe like you know we've had so many auras in this story. Maybe Blake has developed like a fuck the universe aura. Uh, yeah, I, I wouldn't blame him. I mean, we know that when Blake got. Uh, kind of doused with uh, with Poe's radiation. Uh, he had that kind of vibe of giving off negative energy. Maybe that's mm. really just kind of stuck with him more than more than anything. Um, yeah. I mean, I think I think it was just sort of. I think it is kind of the radiation or just the the vibe he's giving off. Like, I don't know mm. if it's as well defined as like a conquest aura or, or Poe's aura. Mm. Uh, but it like it it also is definitely something to do with with him and, and Molly. Like, he's definitely sort of feeding her yep. somewhat. I wonder, like, as I'm saying this, I'm wondering, we have noticed in the last two chapters he is feeling a bit less, you know, boogeyman, rage monstery. Like, I wonder mm. if Molly's actively eating that part of him. Like, that would be... Interesting. That would be convenient for Blake, at least. Yeah. Um, yeah, interesting. I think another piece of the puzzle is we know that uh, for example, uh, Jeremy's uh, satyrs smelled Blake, and he smelled of abyss, leaving behind yeah. that lingering, you know, sense, which presumably means that maybe he's got some kind of abyss radiation that's fucking with Molly. Um, yeah, I mean, the more the satyrs talk about smell, the less I think they mean it in the traditional human sense. Yes. Um. So yeah, like, that would make sense to me. Like, I think he's definitely giving off a bit of an aura, or just you know, he's just got some stank on him. <laughs> like after he saw Pose. Uh, but, you know, I, I think in Molly's particular case, it may be something to do with the sort of remnants of a familial bond that caused her in particular to latch onto it so much. Mm, maybe there is some kind of phantom connection between them that is allowing negativity to, to breed. Yeah. So Blake kind of starts to leave, to, to leave Mags and Molly to their own devices. Um, and... As he does, there's this kind of shockwave of energy. Uh, something big has happened, and it smells like wine. A big old <laughs> wine fart passes over the town. Um, 
and it, and Blake obviously knows something's going up at Hillsglade House. Wine equals Jeremy, so he runs off to the yep. house and finds Jeremy has done something to bust down the door and starts getting inside. I love the writing when this shock wave hits. Mm. Uh, it, like right from the get go, you just get a sense of how monumental this is because the first mention of it is Blake sort of pausing as if he has a premonition, and you're like, a premonition of, of, of what? And then there's just this massive description of this shockwave that, like, touches every cell in his body. Uh, it's it's such an oh-fuck moment. Uh, yeah. It's, it's yeah, pretty great. It. And then, uh, obviously, after that, we, we get the reveal that part of this is that there's a, well, you know, we've just been talking about auras. There's a drunk aura. Uh, now, like, there's a, like, Jeremy's God has an effect of just making you feel a bit tipsy. Yeah. Uh, and, um. and I mean, presumably a little bit horny. I, I mean, Blake doesn't get that, but he's not really in the situation to, to really be feeling that end of it. Yeah. Um, but I, like, I imagine there's probably a bit of that, but it's just, this is a really fun concept. Like we've had such negative auras in the story up until now, <laughs> be explicitly defined. So just to have one that's just kind of a silly concept, it's like, yeah, Blake's going to get drunker as this fight goes on. That's yeah. pretty funny. Yeah. Um, I like that. There's this beat where Blake kind of feels a little rejuvenated by this aura for a moment. Um, and on first read, you're kind of like, what is this? But I, I kind of have chosen to interpret it as he's already started getting a little bit drunk and he just feels a <laughs> little bit lighter because of it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, could be both. Um, but yeah. like, I, I think you're probably right. Um, <laughs> also, just just before we leave, Mags, as Blake rushes us off, I wanted to call out uh, one one last line, which is as he leaves. Uh, he's, he says to Molly, you know, if you need help, just call me. And Mag's uh, responds, what if you need help? Uh, and Blake just thinks, but I was already gone, too far away to answer the question. And I mean, if that just isn't Blake to a fucking T. <laughs> uh, like, he, you know, oh, but Blake, what, what if you need help? No, nope, can't hear you. I'm already, I'm already running off into danger. Thank yep. you. See ya. See you later. Let me know if you need help, but I'm, I'm out of here. <laughs> um, yeah, definitely it's it's a good read uh a good a good live tweet uh yeah vintage blake <laughs> um so first thing to talk about here is jeremy has violated like the one place that was safe he's just totally mm. fucked it up um which is great i mean you know jeremy is, is not an imposing threat the only thing we've actually really seen him do that that was imposing was he kind of won slash stalemated a fight against isadora but this is like this is something that, like, the Bahames couldn't even really do. They kind of fooled their way around it. This is something that even Conquest seemed possibly unable to do. It was, like, kind of up in the air whether he would even be able to access some of this stuff. It was pretty... This is pretty big. Yeah, I mean, we... Even though Jeremy basically told us it was coming last chapter, it still feels so huge and unexpected. Yeah. Uh, because, I mean, this is something that's been drilled into us from the beginning of the story i mean if we if we t want to talk about how arc 10 is reflecting arc 1 a lot uh 1.2 was all about getting to the house because it's safe from from everything and and so much of the story it's always been hillsglade house is pretty much safe from anything and so it really throws us for a spin yeah um I mean, and, you know, and blake has been unable to get in and well like you know since he got banished so it's it's been such an impenetrable place it really throws you for a spin that uh jeremy just sort of walked up and, and got it smashed open and not just like you know you, the, the power of it's really felt by the fact that he didn't just smash the door open but the whole house like looks like it's been hit by an earthquake from yeah. the descriptions yeah um yeah it's it's great i love it um the other thing i love is the henchman that he has with them i mean we've obviously had descriptions of the satyr and, and his you know his his i'm not going to call them the cabal i don't know what to call them his his uh, <laughs> coterie is his the harem the story. yeah his coterie there we go um we've had descriptions of them before but we kind of re are introduced to them through blake's eyes here and they're all like super beefy one of the satyrs is like super jacked one of the maynards has this huge snake that it's carrying around like they're very uh beefy henchmen which i think is another great way of being like hey yeah these people that were kind of like creepy but not necessarily threatening before except in a big group they're all actually quite imposing so be careful yeah, he's uh he's really brought all the big guns and it's it's really impressive. Yeah. Um and the um, final thing the final thing that I well sorry, were you going to oh, sorry. Uh I was just going to say like you know, as we sort of already touched on, we've been waiting this whole story for 
Jeremy to really show us why he's actually a contender for the Horde of Toronto. He's never really felt like it. <laughs> yep. And we're finally, we're finally really seeing it here. Like, it's not just that one move by his god, but all these people and the equipment he's gotten. Like, he's, he's pretty, you know, decked out. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, he, he kind of has this lifetime of small gifts that has built up, right? Uh, and now he seems mm. quite, quite powerful when he needs to be. Um, so the other thing that I kind of noticed, I'm not sure what to make of this, is Blake in the mirror has always kind of, now he seems to be able to spot, kind of see through defenses or see through like facades a lot more than he used to. He's kind of very easily able to uh, like recognize the satyr for who, what they are and kind of see through their masks almost immediately, um, which he, not that it was impossible for him to do in the real world. It just seems that he's kind of from the mirror's is able to do that a lot more effectively, and I'm not quite sure what to make of that. Yeah, like, you know, because there's so many factors. Like, it could be the recent changes he's undergone. It could just be, like, aside from that, him sort of growing in his ability to notice that sort of stuff. Maybe those two things aren't separate. Yeah. Or, like, maybe it's a thing in the mirror world, you know? If, if these things are sort of putting on, not quite glamour, but you know, if, if it's sort of when they're in the presence of humans, they're putting on these sorts of things. Like, you know, we know mm. goblins go out of their way to avoid uh, being in your field of view and stuff. Uh, maybe this sort of ties into that. And because he's in the mirror world, because he's not a person, they don't sort of switch the effect on or have these have the effect switched on for them. Yeah, that, that would make sense to me, I think. Um, so Jeremy and his apostles start to dig through the house and they... they- come to the library where the hidden entrance is and, and they start to find it. And so Blake realizes, okay, it's time to get involved here. Uh, he <laughs> does some little mirror tricks to cut up this snake that the, the big maenad is carrying and makes her very angry. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it's interesting because he reaches through the mirror and this was something yeah. we saw Rose only do very rarely and it usually took like pretty extreme circumstances for her to even be able to do it as at least as far as she made out um so you know is this blake actually being more powerful than we think or is this him just racking up injury debt you know i guess yeah stay tuned to find out we we kind of touched on last chapter blake feeling a bit overconfident but he's obviously quite he seems capable and, and relatively powerful here right i mean he's able to hold his own against I mean, he escapes from a bunch of these henchmen, but he also does some damage. Um, and I think the answer lies in some of the beats that we've been hitting this this chapter, right? We hit the beat of Blake being worried about racking up damage. We hit the beat later on of Jeremy being contrasted to Rose in that the more power they spend, the more it costs them. I think that's what we're talking about here. I think Blake is expending power and it is costing him. Uh, but we don't quite see that cost yet. Yeah, I mean, you know. Wouldn't, wouldn't be the first time or, or <laughs> and it the, won't be the, the last the hundredth yeah. time <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah um so blake has cut up this snake and and as a result the head maynad is very angry at him and kind of chases him uh he basically darts through different reflections around the house and the maynad is able to keep up with him uh quite fast but eventually the uh kind of wine fog dulls him enough that he starts to slow down and he's almost caught before he dives behind jeremy who ends up having to call off the main ad for kind of risk of hurting the entire team. Yeah, uh, that was such a good plan, trying to get it to accidentally hit Jeremy. Uh, yeah. It's a shame it didn't work out. I thought it was, I thought it was a good one. Yeah. Um, although not really a shame. I don't want Jeremy to get hurt too bad. <laughs> um, yeah. Oh, I mean, even though he's the, the bad guy right now, I guess, um, mm. I still like him. I wouldn't um, say he's the bad guy. I'd say he's well, yeah, a that's bad fair. guy. <laughs> <laughs> that's very fair. Um yeah, and I mean, it's also fun seeing Blake under attack in the mirror world while or not by something that can get into the mirror world. Yeah. Like, I feel like a big thing we've seen a lot in this arc is that the mirror world isn't actually that safe, really. Like, it seems like a lot of things can interact with it. Yes. Um, I, I like the idea of, even if something can't enter the mirror world, like some of the monsters we've encountered can, even just kind of denying Blake access to things is hmm. basically a counter to him in the way that, uh, in the way that what's her face, the, the kind of troglodyte other that was, that was summoned by Rose. Midge. Back in, yeah. Midge. That's it. I yeah. kept wanting to call her Marge. Uh, that even in the way that Midge was able to kind of deny Rose 
access to her and that was enough to stop rose mm. for a serious pe- amount of time we're seeing the the reverse of that with this main adam blake i was actually just thinking of midge as well because like you know midge thought of this as a tactic so i, I don't think it's exactly like a, a big brain play <laughs> um it's pretty easy may- to figure out yeah maybe i'm underestimating midge but uh she didn't really strike me as a tactician no. uh, so yeah um i mean you know th- like yeah, the mirror world isn't isn't that great, really. I don't yeah. know. Should have um, taken Faye Zell's offer. <laughs> um, I mean, I agree. Uh, so <laughs> this this main ad is uh, like very fast, right? And and you kind of get mm. the picture that I mean, this is the leader of the main ad. So apparently, you know, you you can assume that it's probably the strongest, but it doesn't seem like there would be that big of a difference between this one and a bunch of Jeremy Senchman, of which he has, you know, several. Um, I, well, it kind of seems like the rest of them aren't getting involved just because, like, they, they're, like, jeering her and stuff. Like, it's just, like, you know, it feels more like two people getting in a fight at a frat party. Yeah. Yeah, it's it definitely doesn't feel like they feel like they need to step in. Like, they're like, yeah. yes, yeah. you've got this. Um, yeah, they're just jeering, like, cheering her on. It's just like, yeah, go. Like, you know, they they don't feel the need to help. Yeah, which indicates to me... Uh, like, I mean, yeah, probably they're a bit overconfident in relation to Blake, but also <laughs> they're obviously strong enough that they don't need to worry about a lot of shit. Yeah, I mean, it's it's inter- like I I, I kind of like I, I I like Dionysus's followers for this. Yeah. Like, you know, they're sort of they're very easy to underestimate because you just assume that they're you know they're around drinking and having orgies and stuff all the time. But yeah. um, you know, actually they're they're pretty powerful. Yeah. Yeah, you can have orgies and be powerful is the moral of, of this chapter. Um, yeah, yeah. So, you know, Jeremy has called off the main ad, and so he kind of just talks to Blake here and and uh, ends up kind of trying to convince Blake why he shouldn't interrupt, which is interesting. <laughs> and it's 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 Jeremy really in his element, right? He He's incredibly convincing here. Um. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot to talk about here, but I agree. It's good to see Jeremy sort of stretch his practitioner muscles, uh, especially yeah. considering half of his speech here is how he doesn't really have to use them most of the time. Um, so, yeah, um, I, I think one of the first things I wanted to talk about uh, here is um, there's a bit where Blake is trying to uh, warn him about barbs upstairs, mm-hmm. and Blake says, of the two abstract demons I've met, both followed the same minor rule. If you see it in a reflective surface, like, you know, it can come out and, and kill you. Yep. And, I mean, I, I hadn't I hadn't actively made that sort of connection, but it's true. I mean, you know, we, we were just talking about how a lot of things can interact with the mirror world, but yep. um, it, it's interesting how even, like, it does seem to be a recurring theme in demons. Like, I, I just, and it just got me thinking about the mirror world in general. Like, we, we know so little about it. Like, the vestige world is seemingly everywhere and, and so many things can interact with it. Um it's tied to the demons as, as we just sort of explicitly called out there. I, I'd also mm. argue you could sort of tie it to angels through Johannes. Um, mm. So like, yeah, I think we skipped over some notes last chapter accidentally, but um, I, I'd written some stuff about um, how like the mirror world seems to be halfway between the spirit world and the mortal realm. Mm. Um, Cause you know, Blake talked a lot about how things only stayed when he like, you know, put conscious effort into putting them there, which reminded me of the spirit world mechanic. Yep. Um, back in arc, God, was that only arc seven? Feels so yeah, long ago. something like that. Um, yeah. So, um, I like I don't know. I'm interested to see. Hopefully, we get more details on where the mirror world fits into the various layers of of dimensions in the Pactverse, because it, it does seem to fit this interesting slot where a lot of things can access it, and it means different things for each one. Yeah, I. Usually I would be all for kind of defining some of these realms a bit more, but I actually kind of like that it's a little bit of an unknown which things can fit into which, you know, realms, if you want to call them mm. that. Um, I, I think it, it, it gives you this interesting vibe of it's always surprising when something enters the mirror world, right? Like it's always, <laughs> it always feels like a surprise that, oh, this thing can do it, or oh, that thing can also do it, or oh, that thing can't. It's kind of interesting. It adds this level of like, I don't know, dynamicness to, to, to some of these fights. No, I, I agree. I think that is a strength. I'm not I'm not looking for a like complete explanation, but 
Um, you know, even like uh, one of my favorite little bits of world building we've gotten recently was right at the start of Signature where uh, Butsack theory or was talking about the different theories on the origin of goblins. Like yeah. Maybe just some of that stuff. Like yeah, what, that would be Just fun. some generic ideas and theories about what the mirror world uh, means to the various peoples of this uh, of this universe. For more info on that, you can check out Doctor Strange, I believe. <laughs> um, so... Blake and Jeremy are talking, and Blake is kind of talking about uh, about Barbie and how close Barbie is to kind of being freed, and possibly Barbie is already freed. Uh, but Blake doesn't realise this kind of makes Jeremy's argument stronger, because he's made Rose drunk. <laughs> <laughs> and I love that Jeremy kind of realises, like, oh, fuck, I may have fucked up here. There's a demon that's already almost on the loose, and drunk Rose might make it actually on the loose. Which Blake explicitly calls out. Blake was like, hey, you know what? This was a shit plan. And, like, <laughs> you know, if Blake is telling you that your plan's a shit plan, yeah. like, you got to feel called and, out. And Jeremy basically admits it later on as well. He's kind of <laughs> like, this would have been so perfect if not for this thing. <laughs> yeah, if not for the fact that the Diabolist might have had access to demons, which obviously yeah. she probably does. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, th- there's an interesting thing that sort of jumped out to me here uh, where, where Blake sort of compares... Barbatorum to, to Earth specifically and, mm-hmm. and talking about them. And I, I don't know exactly why, but it triggered this random thought in me that like we haven't seen Ur's imps anywhere yet, have we? Like like that that was like a big thing at the end of Seven Dot X is that mm. Ur released his, his three imps. Like mm. I, I mean I guess that it's just interesting because we've sort of moved away from Toronto and we've got like people like Jeremy here and I just wonder like are these imps just fucking up Toronto? Like Jeremy Jeremy said in his interlude, Oh, I'm just gonna be here for a week and I'm just picturing him like leaving now in like six days and getting back to toronto and it's just like a mess so uh, ur spawned three imps right yeah and then blake went to the abyss and then the next we saw something like two or three weeks later rose and three people showed up tiff tyler and alexis make of that what you will (laughs) (laughs) Uh, i I didn't realize you'd taken my tinfoil hat and added it to your own yeah Um, it's it's really gone off the rails since i adopted it no. Yeah, I don't know. Who knows what's going on with them? If, if first quiet imps are running rampant in Toronto, Isadora must be miserable. <laughs> yeah, I love that idea. Um, yeah, who knows what's going on with them? I mean, I'm sure we'll we'll check in with that with that whole situation at some point. Yeah. Also, everyone keeps talking up how Barbatorum is worse than Ur, which I don't... Maybe it's because he's been stuck in a circle for the entire story. I don't mm. see it yet. Um, mm. I mean... I don't know. Wait, yeah. Ur is a minor demon and barbatorum is not a minor demon at least yeah as far exactly as we know. so i don't know like, i mean yeah. like yeah maybe uh, maybe rose got really lucky capturing or you know is is better than we think and uh like you know barbatorum could really fuck shit up given their chance mm. i guess we'll maybe see uh drunk rose we'll see um God, so not. uh yeah so so jeremy kind of explains that hey like <laughs> well, it's interesting. Jeremy kind of appeals to Blake's low opinion of Rose. He talks about how she's drunk and she's affected by conquest. Like it's, I know you don't, I know you don't trust her her judgment, and it's it's worse right now. So let me get to her, and I can you know stop whatever she might do. Yeah, well, it's interesting because he starts this sort of tactic later in the conversation, and early in the conversation, there's a bit where Jeremy calls Blake uh, the Diabolist's favored pet. Mm. And Blake is sort of like, well, you got one out of three. And so I'd like to think that this is Jeremy, like, internalizing that information and realizing halfway through that Blake and Rose are not at all on the same page and he starts to use it. Yeah. Yeah, I like that. It's 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 not explicit, but it kind of hints towards Jeremy being this seemingly, not incompetent, but like, I don't know, very laissez-faire and not putting in a lot of effort, but actually quite smart and quite good at what he does. Yeah, he's all about being underestimated. Yeah. Um, so a, a large part of this conversation revolves around Jeremy kind of making the connection between him and Rose as kind of servants to powers, basically infinite power that they could use, but it comes with a huge downside for them. Um, to make the point to Blake that, like, it's basically saying, hey, I don't want to use all this power, but I could, but I don't want to, so please make it easier on us. Um, it's an interesting connection. I love the idea of... Uh, uh, of them really being able to win in any situation, depending on how flexible they're willing to be with with their compunctions. Yeah, I mean, although there's a there's an interesting difference where a 
Diapolis kind of knows it's going to be bad mm. because, you know, when you call the demon, it's just not good. It's yeah. never going to be good yeah. uh, for you or for anyone. Whereas with, with the with the Acolytes of Gods, I mean, the difference for them is they're kind of gambling. Like they're, you know, they're either playing it safe or they're sort of pushing the boundaries and, and trying to hope that they have enough favor and the god finds the situation interesting enough to bother, basically. Yeah. Um. So you're right. It's like a really interesting comparison with a very subtle difference to it. I, I, I really like it, especially because, you know, we, we, we talked last episode about this sort of thing where demons and gods can kind of hurt each other and fight each other. Uh, and, and so it's interesting to see how people working for both of them, uh, you know, not entirely dissimilar. Yeah. Um, although I'm kind of reminded of what Faisal said, that a demon and a angel, he said, but presumably it applies to gods as well, of equal strength, the uh, demons will win. So I don't know. I, maybe maybe the edge lies with the demons for this battle. Uh, yeah, I mean, potentially. We, we don't know how, um, you know, Barbatorum slash or- Ornius slash whoever stacks up compared to Dionysus. I can't imagine Dionysus is super all-powerful these days, but... Yeah, uh, um, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I, I, one of the, a, Just a funny line here. Uh, a, a, one of the younger satyrs references the situation and says, Jaeger bomb, and then laughs, and Blake describes it as snickering as if it were far funnier than it was. Which, I don't know, like, I thought it was a pretty funny joke, to be honest. Yeah, I laughed. I, th- I thought it was funny. Maybe maybe we're just shitty Seder humour, like, chumps. <laughs> we have, yeah, we have the same sense of humour as uh, Satyrs, which I don't know what that means, but it probably isn't good. <laughs> um, so, so Blake kind of has this conversation with Jeremy and then kind of throws in a few words and then just, like, vanishes halfway through his sentence to, to get upstairs and run to find the Cabal. And he finds them uh, all unconscious on the floor. And Jeremy's right behind him and walks in and he says he's behind the glass and can't do a thing. So, yep, everything's coming up. Jeremy, Thorburn. I guess. Oh, yeah, sure. <laughs> um, yeah, so, yeah, it's not a great situation. Uh, it seems that Jeremy has won this little fight for now. Uh, we shall see next time on Pact. But that's not the end of our show. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Before we go, a quick reminder that we are currently doing a discussion question. Um, That discussion question is this. What form do you think Molly will take as a familiar to Mags? We still haven't seen the answer to this yet, so there's time to get in your answers. Uh, We'll probably Mm. be talking about it during our next episode, which comes out in a little bit. But before then, leave your answers in the discussion thread. Yeah. Uh, You know, it should be two two or so days after this releases before we sit down to record the next chapter so you got a you got a bit of time yep um again before we go let's let's do a little bonus thing i want to talk about mermaids let's dive into the history of mermaids since we've met the best character and that is a mermaid um, yes uh this is a long overdue monster corner i think yes so uh, monster corner is basically the segment where i start googling something and then fall down a rabbit hole and and this is no different um <laughs> so i started off just kind of getting all the basic facts so you know mermaids first depictions are from mesopotamian artwork you know 18 18- oh, that's pretty um that's pretty far back yeah like 2000 1800 to 1500 bc um usually mermen to start out with actually but mermaids did appear occasionally and and the early version of mermaids was definitely like protective they were kind of protective figures, um, which I like as implications hmm. for green eyes. That's fun. <laughs> um, but obviously, after that, something interesting happened to the concept of mermaids, where they kind of merged with the idea of sirens, which were a pre-existing, or not pre-existing, but a, a, a distinct mythological creature, right? Um, so sirens were, you know, in Greek mytholo- mythology, like like the Odyssey, um, were half woman and half bird, right? Which they are, like you know, mm-hmm. nowadays siren and mermaid are synonyms. Um, yeah, I've I, I always thought of them as the same thing, yeah. right? Because contemporarily, they they are the same thing. I mean, they're referred to as the same thing, right? And and parts of kind of siren mythology have crossed over into mermaid mythology, right? Like sirens sa- sang to or played instruments sometimes, but mostly sang to lure sailors onto rocks and die. Um, mm-hmm. which if they were birds kind of makes sense that they would sing, whereas it doesn't really make sense for mermaids, right? Um, I like how some idiot must have crashed his boat into a rock yep. because because the birds were singing and so he had to make <laughs> up a story about how they were like sexy birds and that's yep. why he fell for it. 
Yeah, uh, sexy birds is a, a horrifying thought. Um, yeah, so uh, this is the interesting thing. Somewhere around like medieval times, like 800 to 900 AD, sirens and mermaids really started getting mixed up. Um, and then and then people kind of fell off the wagon with what a siren was. People thought they were half dragon, half woman for a while, which obviously comes from bird. And then possibly then they're like scaled half half human half some scaly creature which then turns into fish and then they kind of merge with the mermaids from there and then by like 14th century they're basically interchangeable in mythology Mm, mm. so so sirens obviously were known to lure people sailors to their death on uh in aquatic environments so they're not necessarily dissimilar but um this is kind of where the origin of, of mermaids as sirens comes from, is from this merging of two different bits of mythological, I don't know, stuff. Yeah, um, well, there's some overlap there, so that makes sense. Yeah, uh, so then Blake, obviously, when he meets Green Eyes, he's kind of worried that she is going to lure him into the water, which obviously is a, a very siren thing to do, um, which is interesting. I don't know, maybe maybe uh, sirens and mermaids aren't as, as associated in Pact, maybe they still are, who knows? Well, I mean, it's funny because in the world of Pact, like it does seem like a uh, popular belief has a lot of influence over yeah. how things actually work. Like, you know, are there some four thousand year old mermaids that used to be sirens and they're real ticked off that yeah. they all forgot what they used to be like and they kind of <laughs> slowly got merged? Or four thousand, you know, four thousand year old sirens and they're like, uh, we don't look like that. We're we're bird people. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, so I, I'm gonna I'm gonna bring out some some fun mermaids from around the world uh, because mermaid mythology is quite global. Um, but it's not always uh, fish, half woman, half fish, or half man, half fish. Uh, Brazilian mermaids known as Iara, uh, half snake. Uh, same as French mermaids known as Melusine. Fun fact about Melusine actually, uh, or Melusine maybe is plural, maybe is singular. It depends. Uh, but if you if you look at the Starbucks logo, that's actually thought to be based on Melusine. Uh, if you look at the old Starbucks logo especially, it's really easy to tell. The newer one is kind of a stylized version of the old one, and it loses a lot of the, uh, I don't know, the, the original design ideas. No respect for the, for the history of <laughs> Melusines. Yeah, it's, it's um, Starbucks war on, on Melusine, is what it is. So when you say, like, half snake, half woman, like, yeah. but you still mean as in water-based like you know yes almost always water-based and that makes sense because obviously there are aquatic snakes but it does seem that there was a point in in mythology where basically it was a woman and a scaly something whether that's a dragon whether that's a snake whether that's a fish um it kind of morphed into this woman plus scaly thing with a scaly tail uh and then eventually just kind of normalized as fish um, yeah. Okay. Just one uh, one other weird mermaid from around the world that I really liked is the Ningyo, which is the Japanese mermaid, which sometimes is depicted similar to what we would think of as a mermaid now, but originally was a giant fish with a human face and a monkey's mouth with sometimes horns and fangs, which is fucking bonkers. Um, thanks, Japan. Yeah, I don't, I don't like it. Yeah, uh, and if you ate them, you would get eternal youth and beauty. So all kinds of fun uh-huh. uh, things. Uh-huh. Actually, I've got a picture there, which is in our notes, but other people won't be able to see. It's horrifying, so don't scroll down, Elliot. <laughs> oh, God. Oh. Yeah. yeah. Um, Ew. So, obviously, Green Eyes has a lot of overlap with, with mermaids, uh, but, but also a lot of overlap with anglerfish. Um, and I did a little bit of research in this. I know you've looked into anglerfish more as well, uh, but just to, to quickly cover it off, um, obviously, since mermaids are half fish, a lot of a lot of mythology will be based around mixing traditional mermaid uh, mythology with different kinds of fish um seemingly anglerfish is one of the most common there's like a lot of anglerfish mermaid stuff uh, there's a whole kind of tumblr tag on it that has a bunch of safe work and some not safe work uh, artwork thanks tumblr <laughs> um but i'd recommend checking that out and i i kind of started looking for other types of mermaid based on different fish and i couldn't really find much there's a few catfish mermaids which uh, yeah, I'm deleting those images right now. Yeah, I would. I would. Some of them are <laughs> terrifying. One, there's some cute ones as well. Um, but I, I actually didn't find as many different kinds of mermaids as I, I would have thought. Uh, anglerfish was quite common, but there was some catfish stuff, but there wasn't a lot of other ones. Um, so I'd love to see more mermaid fish kind of breed breeds. I suppose is the word. Uh, fish like swordfish could be quite cool, or or. A blobfish would be fun. Um, I, I think in general, fish are quite a fun little design space to play in. So send me your different types of fish uh, 
mermaid fan art, I guess, is the thesis <laughs> here. Um, yeah, but so as you sort of alluded to, I sort of tried to specifically dive into anglerfish uh, because obviously that's the type of mermaid that uh, green eyes is. And yeah. um, as, as you sort of mentioned, it seems to be quite quite popular as a sort of mermaid variety, presumably because they've got such a unique style. Yeah, mostly. definitely. Um, but I tried to look into the symbolism and, and, and you know, his, history surrounding anglerfishes specifically. Um, there's not much. Uh, you know, there's some like generic deep sea crap that more has to do with krakens and, and stuff. Yep. Um, and you know, that's because anglerfish weren't really discovered till like 120 years ago. Um, but I did find one astrology website, Primal <laughs> Astro- Astrology, yep, uh, which classic. has a sign for anglerfish. Um, so this is clearly the only reputable astrology site online. Um, and you know, it has a whole page detailing you know, the traits and, and personalities and relationships of uh, people born under the anglerfish sign. Yep. So presumably these are all ones that will apply to green eyes. So let's hear it. Yes. Uh, so people of the sign anglerfish are powerful, clever, determined, and mysterious, mm-hmm. which, like, yeah, I, I mean, I guess we'll see. Um, they're very competitive, apparently. So I don't know. She's kind of alone right now. So I don't know, I don't know if <laughs> we'll green see. eyes will get yep. to... Um. They use their immense intellect to outwit others in the game of life. Mm-hmm. Um, and in fact, uh, the primal astrology compares them to professional poker players because they can keep a straight face and keep others guessing about their next move, I'd- which is very ominous mm-hmm. in the context of green eyes. Yeah. Uh, although maybe it just means she'll be really good at poker. So that could be cool. <laughs> uh, Blake can have the faceless woman and the revenant around in the forum. <laughs> yeah. Who's poker. got a better poker face? The faceless woman or <laughs> green eyes? <laughs> <laughs> um, one thing they did point out is that anglerfish are mostly loners, uh, but they do enjoy socialising from time to time. So, I mean, lucky for, for green eyes. Mm. Um, they prefer observing others before engaging them, which actually is exactly what green eyes did. So, um, you know, this website is very legit. Yeah. Um, and when meeting a new person, we'll usually hesitate to share much about themselves and instead we'll ask questions about others, which is again, this- that's what green eyes did. Okay. Uh- so some of these are just kind of ex- they it doesn't feel like astrology and more just kind of like they f- tried to figure out ways that they could interpret traits about the anglerfish <laughs> to apply to people. Uh, you've written a note here which you skipped which says they prefer to use their cunning to draw others to them rather than chasing after anyone, which is just like what anglerfish <laughs> do and they've tried to apply it to social situations. Is that is that what this is all about? I don't know. Well, no, it's it's yeah, it's fifty percent that fifty percent things that are so generic that they don't. <laughs> Don't really matter um, no but which it's is, true you know, and it applies to green eyes so it's fair yeah, yeah like all that stuff about approaching uh observing others before engaging with them it's just <laughs> that's very specific really sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah um yeah so uh they actually have a list of famous uh anglerfish to, okay. to finish off the article i didn't recognize most of the people mm-hmm. um i only i only recognized Brittany murphy mm-hmm. and uh pablo picasso so make of that what you will mm. Um, I don't know Pablo what to Picasso make that, in the drains with as a as an anglerfish well, mermaid. We know that somebody was Green Eyes' kind of mentor and rescued her, so maybe it was Picasso. You you <laughs> can't say for sure that it wasn't Elliot. I'm I'm locking it into <laughs> the head cannon. cannon. <laughs> <laughs> that will definitely be confirmed later on in the story. Um, oh, I bet. Before we just keep talking about anglerfish forever, I suppose it's time for us to to wrap up this episode. Um, as a reminder if you want to answer the discussion question on what form Molly will take as Mags' familiar uh, please head to the discussion thread which we linked in the episode description or if you just want to leave us some comments post your favourite anglerfish mermaid fan art from Tumblr um, please tag all the not safe for work ones there are a lot Um, yes and of course you know if, if you want more of the public to see your uh, not safe for work anglerfish pics, mm-hmm. hit us up on Twitter yep. at MediaMD Podcast. Yes. Um, you can check out on our Twitter the live reads. Uh, so Elliot will live read stuff and there'll be additional discussion happening both on Twitter and on the Reddit that, that we don't have time to cover in the show. So it's a good place to, to get more of that deep impact fic, uh, fix that you crave. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you want more info on when all that stuff is happening, uh, doofmedia.com has a calendar page that yes. you can get to from the front page, and that'll tell you when all of that stuff is. Have we mentioned Behamebot as well? Uh, 
If you're a member of the Doof Patreon, patreon.com slash doofmedia, you'll gain access to the Doof Discord. And one of the parts of the Discord is there's the Behemoth, which is a a robot with some uh, Laird Behem fan art as its icon <laughs> that will keep you posted on how long it is until different Doof things happen. So episodes of Doof shows or all kinds of different things that are happening in and around the Doof community. Yeah, and I, I mean, I, I quite like it because it tells you how many hours until something. Mm-hmm. Um, the the calendar on our website is unfortunately limited to showing everything in Chicago time, which means basically nothing to me as an Australian. Yep. Uh, so it's it's always nice to to uh, for Bahambot to tell me it's in twenty two hours rather than eight a.m. Uh, in Chicago. Yeah. Um, of course, the Doof Media site has more things than just the uh, Chicago time calendar. It has all the other great shows on the Doof Media network, including the Doofcast. Uh, there's a new episode of the Doofcast uh, that has just come out or is about to come out. Uh, on the happening comes out comes out exactly the same time as this episode there you go um Um, yeah and i mean you know i watched the happening uh when i was like 16 on a plane and of mm -hmm. course you know uh you you kind of enjoy every movie on a plane i don't know what's with that i just i've I've never i've seen a lot of shit movies on planes and still love them low oxygen levels low oxygen levels yeah yeah um but anyway i really liked it on the plane so i can't wait to hear scott and matt uh you know hopefully reaffirm that for me without me having to actually rewatch it and yeah have that in doubt i mean some people still liked the village some people still liked uh what was it called lady in the water right i feel like this is the one where it's like nobody thinks this is a good movie (laughs) um Uh, yeah i think this is roughly around the turning point like as as the doofcast moves through the Shyamalan films. I think this is the point where things in in the public consensus tend to sour. So I'm excited for Scott and Matt to finally be negative about a Shyamalan movie. Maybe. I mean, who knows? Maybe they'll <laughs> we'll enjoy uh, Taylor Lautner and Marky Mark and the Trees, um, which was the original title of that movie, actually. Um, anyway, mm-hmm. if you want to support other great shows like those on, uh, like the Doofcast and other shows on the Doof Media Network, you can head to the Patreon, patreon.com slash doofmedia. We've already mentioned some of the perks you get, uh, but there are a whole bunch of them and they're too much to list unless we want to go over an hour again. So check it out on the Patreon. Yes. And of course, we always like to remind you, Walbo has a Patreon too. Mm-hmm. And if you're listening to this show, if you're listening to We've Got Ward, if you're reading Ward, if you're reading Pact, uh, you should throw some dollars his way if you can, because, I mean, without that Patreon, we wouldn't have these stories, and that would be not good. Yeah, I, I, I'll say. Um, and that's our show for today. Uh, but if you can't, you just can't wait, it's all right. We'll be back soon with episode 10.7, talking about Malafide 10.7. That will be on Monday, the 2nd of September. So we'll see you then. See ya.